If I Ran the Bank is a podcast hosted by Clayton Weir, co-founder and head of product and strategy at Fispan, a fintech that is enabling banks to provide contextualized, consumer-like experiences to their business clients. Clayton is a thought leader in financial innovation and hits on the hottest topics in banking, finance, and the future of payments. And he wants to know, if you ran the bank, what's the one thing you'd go all in on? Please tune in to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, here's your host, Clayton Weir. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of If I Ran the Bank. I'm your host, Clayton Weir. I'm super excited to have my guest here today, Paul, Ma- Paul Margaritas from JPMorgan Chase. He is a, a close personal friend, which is a good way to get an invite onto the show. But beyond that, he is a super experienced financial services professional. I think having seen kind of very different sides of the ecosystem, I think from investment banking through to um, a little bit on the compliance and regulatory side through to uh, being deep in kind of the treasury and um, wholesale banking innovation realm where I met him. And now I think building the future of financial services on the uh, blockchain, if I'm not mistaken. So welcome to the show, Paul. Hey, Clayton, thanks for having me. I'm also super excited to be here and to chat with you. Did I miss anything in your intro that you want the people to know? Uh, only that we've been working together for three years now um, in some projects and that, uh, yeah, I'm now in the blockchain world and part of JP Morgan's Onyx team, which is our new business line under, under wholesale payments, where we're taking a number of initiatives across our, our blockchain assets and uh, changing uh, the future of banking. No, it's really interesting. And I mean, I imagine whenever you walk into the room and try and talk about this, you probably take, somebody probably puts up some Jamie Dimon quote about hating Bitcoin from 2016 because he had infinitely many of them. But the irony of that, right, where he was kind of often held up as the public kind of bearer on, on crypto as an asset class, I think JP Morgan's probably been as aggressive as any North American institution on their own proprietary sort of blockchain, uh, crypto sort of investments and experiments over the last like four or five years. Yeah. And what's really interesting and, and kind of what excited about, about, about the role and the opportunity here at JP Morgan and what I'm working on is the fact that JP Morgan's approach early on was really to say, look, there's, there's kind of two elements here, right? There's the crypto element and the value exchange. For now, let's put that aside, right? That that that's something that's going on in the market that was very nascent and a lot, you know. Let's let's put that aside, and I think that's what kind of Jamie alluded to in a lot of those quotes and comments. But there's an underlying technology, blockchain, um, an underlying technology that, when built and 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 deployed in the right way, has a lot of interesting use cases, particularly in the financial services sector. Um, that could really change the way we do a lot of different banking activities, particularly around payments. And if you think about payments, it's it's you know there's two elements to a payment. There's the value exchange, which again we could we could put to the side, but there's also the information exchange. And the information exchange across banks, across multiple hops, across languages, across currencies, across countries, is hard. Uh, it's challenging. Um, and that's where the technology and the ability to have a secure and permission network where banks can share information um, in a peer-to-peer manner could take away all those challenges 
Um, and that's what was really interesting, exciting, because we were able to say, let's let's look at the underlying technology first. Let's focus on the challenges in the industry and in the information exchange. And then, which we're seeing now, maybe we can layer the, the, the value exchange on, on, on top of that. Totally makes sense to me as, as a starting point. And I mean, we had a conversation a few episodes ago on this show about sort of the nature of correspondent banking and how hard that is and how the you know, from a regulatory and compliance perspective, it's probably just getting harder day by day. And that, um, you know, it's, it's not even a technology problem in some ways. It's about the network and how the network interlinks. But on, on that note, is that a fair way to sum up sort of the spirit of, I, I think it was called IIN, I think the branding is linked, right, with IIN in the middle. But effectively, that is that what you're trying to do is use what the blockchain is good at and stitch together the network of global correspondent banks that JP Morgan kind of banks with into something that then could exchange data in a very modern way. I mean, you got it. There's there's the pitch. I'm, I'm thanks, Clayton. <laughs> but that's exactly how we approach the, the the problem, right? I mean, JP Morgan's correspondent banking network is tremendous. We we work with all the different institutions out there and around moving money across borders. Um, we saw exactly what you're saying. We saw the different, you know, different regulatory regimes present different challenges. Different uh, banks using different types of data assets presents challenges, and ultimately, it's the end customer that that is kind of kind of hurt in the process, right? Because you're trying to send money from one place to another, and you know that could be delayed um, because one kind of problem within that corresponding network um, that could reach a fraudulent account. Um, a number of issues could pop up pop up along the way, and what J.P. Morgan did, and, and quite frankly, it's really it's really about the partnerships we're, we're trying to form is we said, look, we have that technology. The tech allows us to, to basically say, we agree who's going to be on this network. Um, they're going to be a financial institution or a large corporate. Um, we agree that around data security, that the you know information shared cannot be viewed only by those asking for the information and, and receiving the information. Um, and, you know, once we kind of had that structure, we said, how can we build what what would be our approach to that network? And what we came up with is that, yes, it's JP Morgan's link network, which was formerly in, but it's not about JP Morgan. It's about the network participants. It's about deploying applications and capabilities across that network that allow the industry to move forward, that allow all the participants and their clients to benefit. Um, and that's really been our approach in, in, in terms of how we've established that network and how we're trying to deploy capabilities on that network. No, it, it makes makes complete sense to me. And so if we kind of pause, I guess, on the like the sales brochure sort of, you know, ex glossy rhetoric on this and like big down underlying when people complain about like international payments or, you know, going back to that thing about corresponding bank being broken. I think it's easy to actually take the opposite approach. It's kind of amazing that it works at all, right? Like it's kind of actually wild that you can wire money to like the Philippines um, when you have any concept of how ugly it is underneath. But could maybe like dig into what those issues are or maybe give for, for people that aren't in that, like some of the things that actually happen end to end to kind of get, you know, a million dollars from here into, you know, cross currency into another country. I mean, yeah, let's I let's take let's take a couple of real examples, right? I mean, first of all, let's say we're we're talking to a corporate treasury team in in the United States, right? We know their processes, we've spoken with those clients. They get an invoice. 
Um, th that invoice might have new banking details. That old banking details are to pay a vendor that's in Indonesia. Let's use Indonesia as an example. Um, first of all, is it the vendor that actually sent that invoice? Did they get spoofed um, via email? Is it, you know, did they, did they actually get it from that vendor? Aside from picking up the phone and calling that vendor um, or the known kind of contact information on that vendor, no other way of really knowing. Then what we'll find is that they'll enter that information and generate the payment. The payment will go through the various hops it has to go through the correspondent banking network. What the institution originating the payment, what the, the, the treasury team initiating the payment doesn't know are the different rules that exist in the countries that those correspondent banking banks reside, or even the beneficiary uh, accounts reside. Indonesia is a great example because the, the, there's a local requirement that the name that the payment is going to actually matches, fully matches the name on the account. Does every treasury team know that? Does everyone trying to make that payment in Tunisia know that? Probably not. Is there a system or service within the financial institution previously that would exist that would allow them to check that? No. That's why the network is so important. That I mean, that's why the, that's why those pain points, you know, kind of exist across that correspondent banking network. There's all these rules. There's different kind of technology assets. And there's no one single way to come together to say, okay, here we can completely validate that payment. We completely take out the risk of a return um, where, you know, one of the correspondent banks may, may stop the payment. We, could, we can dramatically reduce the, the risk of fraud. So I know this is going to this account because the bank at the other end actually told me that's their account. So those are the kind of hiccups that exist. And that's why, you know, the information exchange can be so powerful. I totally get it. And so, I mean, again, on the front end, if, if we were kind of going to sum that up, there's the idea of if I'm a payment originator, right, all of the things I need to do that have to be well formed to execute this payment is one thing. And the complexity of that market by market is, is high. The, even just the convention of what constituents like the bank account numbers fundamentally different in some of these countries than what we're used to. But then there might be these name conventions. I know even some countries is like you got to the physical head office address, right, to execute these payments or different tax IDs or reason codes. So a, having access to that, effectively, let's say it's an API call to, to retrieve or confirm that you're sending a well-formed intent is, is job number one, right? So I actually kind of know who I'm transacting with better. I have a better chance of, of forming this kind of payment message in a way that's going to be successful. But I think after that, there's also this idea in these sort of correspondent type payments of like an RFI, right? A request for information, which is which you alluded to, which is this payment may be well formed, but along the way, everybody that's touching it is nervous for whatever compliance burden they are bearing. And they say, hey, I'd really like to know exactly who, you know, company 1132C US that's sending this is with and why, because we have capital controls in this country or whatever. And so that's often where these payments then fail is coming or not fail, but get held up is going back through the chain to like clarify these extra points of information, which it sounds like, again, could be automated in a, in a perfect world. Well, it's a giant game of telephone, right? Depending on how many legs in the correspondent banking network that RFI occurred, 
it, it, you know, is going to initiate where that request comes from. And then it's just going to go back through the network. And that takes time. You have to reach out, email, uh, or go through a secure platform to request from the first institution behind you in the network. That institution needs to go behind them. That doesn't add seconds to the transaction or information exchange. That ad- adds hours. That adds days. In some cases, that adds weeks. Um, I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting you brought that up because that was our on the Link Network. That was the actually first kind of application that we rolled out. It was called Resolve, um, and Resolve was around sanctions inquiries. So an RFI, a, a request for additional information, would come up around sanctions. And our correspondent banking network and the correspondent, obviously, is kind of that game of telephone I mentioned. Um, By using blockchain and by using a network like the Link Network, what we're able to do is deploy an application that facilitates that exchange information. So you could go directly to the requesting institution, so directly to the, the institution initiating the payment, request that information, that request can be connected to their back office systems so that in near real time and via API, they can provide that information. Is it is it a birthday? Looking for a birthday. Hits the back office system, responds via API. Here's the birthday. The, the institution asking the information can add that to their investigation, can clear it off in a much quicker and seamless manner, and that, that payment can continue on its way rather than being held up uh, for what could end up being weeks. So there's an organization in, uh, in, in Belgium that probably either should have done this or feels like they do do this or are about to do this. Do you see, like, how do you see this, you know, coinciding, I guess, with sort of the, the pre-existing kind of industry utilities that do some of this today? So some of the applications were, I'd say what's interesting is the applications we're building. Um, they're kind of new and unique, not only in their data, the ability to transfer data, but also in the commercial models that exist for financial institutions. So what we've built is a model whereby institutions that are providing information through our applications are actually going to receive a, a revenue stream for that, that, that information. Um, they're helping, you know, we're, we're all helping our mutual clients reduce friction in their payments process. Um, but also, you know, those institutions that are providing that information are going to also receive that revenue. That's kind of a unique model um, across the world. I, I mean, most of the models out there are really focused around obviously paying in for the ability and providing your data, but don't really offer that channel of commercializing your assets. Now, what's super, super interesting beyond that is that our network and our application isn't necessarily competing with other initiatives out there. Um, In fact, I would say it's actually quite complementary to those initiatives. You're going to work on those initiatives. You're going to share that information. If there's pre-validation capabilities through some of those global bodies, you're going to do that. But here's this opportunity to use the data assets you've built for those capabilities to also commercialize those data assets, also receive a revenue share, and also potentially resell that capability to, to, to your clients if you so choose. So I feel like what you presented there is a really interesting fork into kind of two conversations, right? Maybe both of which are important, but let's kind of try and set them apart. So, I mean, 
that's not something that you would ever really hear a financial institution say out loud in some ways, which is the idea that I sit on some kind of trove of data. And I mean, maybe data is not even the right word for it. It's really more an asset of kind of knowing about these companies and who can do what and what's allowed and not allowed. And they're actually being a business model for like to, you know, by operationalizing and that and, and letting the kind of whole network use it. Um, this is something you hear talked about, right? It's kind of almost seems to be a bad word. It's it kind of, I guess, just the marketing optics of it kind of start to sound like, you know, the things we don't like about people using data, right? And, and monetizing it. But it, it just seems obvious to me as to what the business banks are going to be in in the future. I, I, you know, I agree. And, and, and sometimes it does almost seem like a, like, a, like a bad word, if you will. I think what's interesting is that, you know, there's, there's a big effort, and rightfully so, around the client experience and the user experience. And part of that isn't just providing banking services that we've provided and will continue to provide. Part of that is, is providing guidance, advice, decision-making tools. And you, the decision-making tools, the best decision-making tools, are those that are driven by data. And our corporate clients, and we've seen it, they're, they're, you know, they're making their payments, they're doing their activities. We see certain insights across our payment network. And to the extent that any financial institution is able to take those insights, rationalize those insights, contextualize those insights, and provide them back to the client is, is honestly an incredibly powerful client experience. Um, one that could be commercialized, quite honestly. And, and I think there should be an acknowledgement of that as well. I mean, think about our, you know, think about our consumer banking experience. And I keep coming back to the concept that um, us as a wholesale payments business, we always see that consumer banking experience, what we experience in our consumer banking lives is really driving what we want in our wholesale banking experience. I go on to my Chase Sapphire card. I can see what I've spent money on this month or last month or last year. I can see that I've spent entirely too much on coffee which will inform me to make my own coffee at home so I can reduce that expense. This year, I've seen I've spent $0 on travel, <laughs> which is great. Um, but that experience, that data that, that the firm has then kind of like rationalized for me and provided insights allows me to make better decisions in my life. And it's the exact same concept from a wholesale banking perspective in that we're trying to provide um, our customers with the data insights uh, that they need to make a decision. And I completely agree with you. That's that's effectively the future of banking. That's that's the value-added service that every financial institution out there is talking about. And this, uh, you know, I don't mean to go back to the sales pitch though, but this network is the realization and the channel for those value-added services. The precedent for this that, many people would probably understand of at least short term the idea of, of you know kind of paying for a, a data type transaction would be something similar to I guess what the account aggregators that the fintechs use today are something like Plaid where realistically the business model if you don't know is I'm making something right a, 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 some kind of financial app I need to know that a Paul you know is Paul if he says he's Paul right so I ask him to log in with his JP Morgan Chase account the aggregator sends me a thumb up and they the thumbs up that, yeah, that is Paul. He has a JP Morgan Chase account and they 
I pay them 75 cents or something for, for doing that. I mean, that's kind of probably this first is something like that we're talking about, right? Is a, a bank on the send side says, hey, you know, UOB, is this person actually this? Does this company like who's the whatever you need to know? And there's kind of they are incentivized to fully cooperate because there's like an economic model and it's good for everybody. The, the originating bank's happy to pay. They're happy to receive that and fulfill the task. And the transaction's more likely to go through, which indirectly probably saves everybody a bunch of op costs. Well, there you go. There's, there's, there's the secret sauce too, because that's, that's a, a big piece of the commercial model, right? Because any institution asking for information on the network, so any bank on the network asking for information and paying for that information will make their own decision. They'll say, is the operational cost savings that I have and the client value and, and the market share I may gain or whatever I might do, is that of sufficient value to me? Um, or do I want to see if there's additional value, if there's a willingness to, to, to you know, like the, the model you spoke about, is there a willingness to pass along the cost on that? That's a decision every financial institution can make and should make for themselves. Um, but the benefit is whatever decision you make on that, if you're responding, if you're providing information, you don't care what decision the requester, for instance, is making because you're receiving a part of the fee they're paying anyway you are commercializing your own data asset um, to help payments go through. So I think the initial use cases of what you've built sound very much like they address the issues kind of of the the financial institutions within the value chain. But it seems like inevitably this is going to extend out, probably not so much directly to retail users. They'll probably experience the value very indirectly. But to large corporates, there's probably a number of ways that this changes their life and that you expose more and more of this directly to them in the future right because it's you know when i think about the problems that they have in terms of information visibility you know inherently being multi-banked you know kind of multi-currency multi-country the just the dimension of globalness that all businesses have today there's probably a lot of challenges that really crop up in their world that this would would solve as well yeah in fact we're talking to uh, we've talked to quite a few large corporates uh, across um, different use cases around. Let's you know, let's go with like the account validation piece, right? And really, you should think about it from the I'm I'm paying and I'm receiving. When it comes to corporates paying, um, what we've understood is that a lot of corporates would like to embed account validation act, uh, capabilities where they're storing their vendor information. Um, so the ERP is a big one. Um, can I can I validate the accounts that I have in my ERP, whether it's when I get a new beneficiary, when I get an account updated, or maybe just a general hygiene check? I'd like to run on all my vendors once a year or once a quarter. Um, they'd like to understand to make sure that is the account that I'm paying still open? Is it owned by who I think it's owned? Um, and is there any kind of additional information that would maybe help reduce fraud or make sh- ensure that I'm not going to see a payment return? Um, so on that perspective, just think about it. I, again, I receive a new in- I receive an invoice from a new vendor. I just want to check to make sure that their account's open or I want to make sure they are who they say they are. They could use this network and the capabilities through this network to do that uh, in near real time. If you flip it's it around, okay. sorry. I was going to say, so it's not, and it's not just, I'm guessing, then the originating institution, right? So the person that actually holds this bank account or the KYC on some entity somewhere, that they're the only person updating this record going forward. It's going to be the wisdom of the crowd, right? So another bank might say, well, I don't actually like 
have a first party relationship with that account, but it's been flagged like 10 times in our world because it's always like involved in these phishing schemes or whatever. That's where, that's where it gets cool. And that's where the banks sharing information amongst themselves gets incredibly powerful because it doesn't necessarily have to be something on your books or on your records. It could be something you've seen. Uh, here, here's a real example. Um, we have something on our network in our confirm application, which is our global account validation application called transaction activity. And it's exactly what you said. It's, you know what? I don't know that account. It's not on my books. I don't know if that's the account holder, but I've seen that account. And I can tell you, I've seen successful payments going into that account in the last week. So you can feel confident that that account is probably open. Or we could say, you know what? I've seen that account. I have seen that account, except I've seen fatal returns as the last payments coming out of that account. You might want to do a little more research before making a payment because it's probably going to get returned. That takes the delays. That means I don't make that payment. That means I pick up the phone and that's not wasted time. I pick up the phone and say, look, do I really have your right account information? Because I've got some information that says it might not be open. That prevents me from sending the account and seeing a return. It saves me time. It saves me money. Um, and honestly, it's just it's just a better all client experience. Making making the world a, a better place, I think. The so how I, we're trying to, and I'll tell you what, like, quite honestly, that's, that's one of, one of our main priorities, right? One of our first use cases that's going live, um, on the network when it comes to account validation are, I mentioned Indonesia. So Indonesia is live for us. You can validate accounts for payments going into Indonesia. Our first use case is for workers who are working abroad and looking to send money home. And what we're allowing is that the, the branch they go into for certain branches that are, are using the application, that when they go into that branch and try to send that, that money home, that branch is going to run the application. They're going to check and validate the accounts in Indonesia, and they're going to be able to send it and expect a straight through processing. They're not going to have to worry about returns. So when you're sending money home to your family and you're worried about delays or additional requests for information, or maybe I got something wrong on the account, you don't have to worry about that anymore. It's going to go straight through. Do you have 100% DDA coverage in that market then, or how does that work? We have an extraordinarily high coverage uh, in, in Indonesia. There's a local switching network um, where our financial institution partner uh, in Indonesia will be connecting to that network. Okay, so that would like for North American listener, that'd be like the equivalent of like the Fed being your partner or something, or TCH being your partner, so that, or like in that sense, and not... Um, in a, as exact parallel, but just somebody that had kind of direct access to the actual like clearing all these transactions. Yeah, it, it'd be. I, I'd actually probably would equate it um, probably to like a confirmation of pay in the UK, where you have uh, you know the majority of the institutions connected via confirmation of pay. But yeah, it's it's you know it's it's there are certain countries and regions that have you know, like similar switching networks where one institution is able to respond for the vast majority of the country. Um, which, which is, I mean, it's just incredibly powerful when it comes to, to, to the application um, uh, and the value it's able to provide. And do you, how do you see the, I guess, the operating model for the network like evolving over time? Like, will it always be sort of a proprietary JP Morgan thing? Or do you think it would become more of a, I don't know what the word is, but will other banks kind of take a bigger role, I guess, around the world and kind of building it out collectively? Or That's the big question, Clayton. Um, that's the big question. I mean, 
you know, this is a concept right now that we are incubating within JP Morgan. We are kind of building it out, making sure we're putting the appropriate amount of investment in it. Um, that being said, we look to our, finan- our, our partners, our banking partners, um, and we are looking at various models where they can really participate and, and, and you know, get the get the 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 ROI out of that investment that they that they would like. Um, one model that that's very clear is that you know we are building a third party um, developer program where institutions will be able to create their own applications. They'll be able to manage the own, their own commercial model of the application uh, and and scale those as they seem fit. Um, so we've got a lot of plans. You know, the main message from from me really is that you know J.P. Morgan's built this network. Um, but it's not about JP Morgan. It's about the value that, that all the institutions on the network derive for themselves, derive for the industry and ways in which we can make sure that, that, that is always the case. To pivot, I guess, I guess slightly, I mean, what I think what's interesting about what you're doing, right, is we're now however many years past the, um, public peak hype on sort of blockchain and distributed ledger and all this stuff. And historically what that means is like generally now is when people are actually kind of building all the applications that like, you know, it's after you quit hearing about it when the value is generally getting created. And I think we're in a, uh, at least a subsequent golden age, maybe on the asset pricing on the crypto side, but I mean, in terms of real hard enterprise blockchain applications, um, it seems like that stuff's happening now. And this is one example. What, like what else, do you think is out there that should be built or is being built that are kind of valid, you know, sort of enterprise financial type applications on the blockchain or on distributed? I mean, I, I, I kind of vaguely hinted at it earlier, but I think in a future state, if you have the information exchange and you have the value exchange on the other hand, if you're able to bring them together, that's that's really interesting. So if you're able to, to to kind of bring the various coins that other financial institutions as well as JP Morgan are working on, the dis, uh, distributed ledger technology together with the information exchange, you're effectively just able to, to instantaneously or near instantaneously move the money in a very seamless way, move the information in a very seamless way, and just dramatically change payments. I think we got some time though. Uh, well, I was going to my next question was what, what kind of time frame are we envisioning? Ooh, that? I, 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 for playback purposes, I'd be scared of, of estimating, but I, I think there's a lot of interesting work really being driven uh, out there in the market. I think we've seen a lot of news, you know, come out from JP Morgan too on, on this on this case. Um, but I know there's a lot of you know a lot of interesting stuff being done around this. And on that same note, on a sufficient time frame of your picking i mean how do you see this evolving with banks just with data sharing more broadly right of them playing a role of helping you know i guess who's accessing your data or safely kind of sharing it with the people that you want them to when you want them to like is that something you see evolving over the next five years ten years I think I think that's one of the critical pillars to having something like this be successful because you need to ensure that the appropriate level of controls and data security and privacy is layered into that system. Um, so you know it's it's all about sharing the information when it comes to Blink, for instance. It's all about sharing information for the context of a payment. So I want to make sure that a payment is processed. I'm not sharing information about an account to share information or to to just for the purposes of knowing them or just for the purposes of 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 making sure I could I could give them my service. 
everything has to do about ensuring the right controls and protections are in place to prevent that from happening. Rather, it's about taking that information to say, will this payment be successful? Yes or no. If it's not going to be successful, what do I need to do? If it will be successful, great. I have everything right and I don't have to worry about anything. Completely makes sense to me. Um, So, I mean, I guess just to kind of paraphrase what we've talked about, there is a world where the maybe not all banks, but a material amount of global banks kind of become connected by this very highly permissioned, highly secure network where they can communicate to each other hypothetically about a wide range of data, but in the short term, really around deep kind of account validation, um, the kind of data you need to make international payments. And in the future, that's going to massively change probably the ease, the openness, the time, and the execution costs of how we move money internationally. That's the close notes of kind of what what we're talking about. You got it. And along the way, we're going to massively sort of change the way probably banks and customers of banks sort of think about the way that data gets exchanged and how much context we are able to gather about the people that we do business with in, in a wide range of scenarios. Yeah. And I'd say the they're the ultimate beneficiaries of this this data uh, sharing capabilities, right? Because now their banks are working together in a way that's going to make um, their lives and their jobs easier and, and more efficient and more productive. No, that's uh, that is super super interesting stuff. And I think it's I think it's really profound. I think it's a really interesting example of kind of where that uh, you know now that we're in the kind of hard work build phase of of sort of these blockchain ideas. And this is a really interesting example of one. So maybe just on a lighter note to sort of close out, um, I haven't asked this for a few episodes, but curious what the worst thing you've ever done, worst idea you've ever had that maybe later turned out to be a good idea. <laughs> if you oh. have one to share. Oh, no, no, no. Maybe, I don't know, working with Fispan? Is that one? <laughs> it turned out to be a pretty good idea. Um, Who would have thought? Who would have thought that 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 uh, meeting Clayton Weir would turn out into a great relationship and a good friendship, Clayton? Um, that, that was not a bad idea. That was an incredible idea. Um, whew, I don't know. Worst idea that turned out that turned out really great. Um, I'm hoping it's 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 stumbling into the blockchain space. Quite honestly, um, but you know, I've made a lot of foolish mistakes in my career, but I, I think at least my perspective and, and what I, how I try to live is that those mistakes are learning experiences, right? So as long as I got a learning experience out of anything I've done, I, I think it's been valuable and worthwhile and has hopefully helped me uh, evolve as a, as a financial services professional and as, as, as a person. Yeah, I think that's the biggest lie we tell ourselves in the moment is that our careers have some logical kind of arc trajectory to them. It's those, it only sounds that way when you stitch it back together. Yeah. When you tell the story and, and architect the story, sure, it makes sense looking back. But I, I mean, there is jumps all over the place. Every career has its own like interesting journey that rarely makes true sense. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was great to catch up. This is a, a little bit different, I think, uh, subject matter in a lot of ways than what we talked about um, on the podcast before. So I hope that everybody finds that kind of as exciting and as refreshing as I do. Um, as always, if you're not currently subscribing, you can always sign up and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, I think Amazon Podcasts, which I didn't know there was Amazon Podcasts. And uh, 
would love to have you kind of, you know, listen to future episodes. If you have any questions, comments, want to be on the show, never hesitate to email info at fispan.com. That's F-I-S-P-A-N.com. Thanks for listening. And thanks again, Paul, for coming on. Thanks for having me, Clayton. It's a lot of fun. Awesome. See you all next time.